Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the new edition of a Third Fridays podcast. We're going to talk about a crazy case. Uh, summer is, I guess, over, right, by some people's standards. We're, we're past Labor Day, and this is now the September edition of the podcast. If you missed last month's episode, it's one of the best ones of the year, every single year, because it's the mock trial finals. We had three attorney finalists and three paralegal finalists vying for a prize that I now know the winner of each category, which is exciting. Uh, it's gonna be unveiled to the firm very, very shortly. Uh, but today I have two guests who have actually sat for the finals and have listened to the podcast last month. Uh, so I'm gonna welcome back to the show, Connor Weatherington and Addison O'Donnell. Welcome back, guys. Great to be back. Happy to be here. What'd you guys think of this year's mock trial cast of characters? I mean, you were the ones uh, that were past champions sitting on that side. Uh, you've been through all of it. and. You've also had the opportunity to now be judges and uh, assess uh, people's progress through the competition. What, what did you guys think of last month's show to put in perspective for our listeners? You know, I thought it was really great. You get to, to really see the talent that we have here at Lois from an attorney standpoint, as well as a paralegal standpoint. And you mentioned it, Christian, you hope that our competitors don't listen to that and try to poach our, uh, our paralegals because they did a great job. Uh, Ryan, Josh, and Priyanki, they did an amazing job. I thought it was really great. And then from the attorney side, Alexa, Tomer, um, <clears throat> and Corey, I thought everybody did a tremendous job. And I know it's a lot of pressure sitting on that side of the table, um, but whoever comes out, uh, it will be well-deserved. You know, I've always loved the mock trial program, and I, I've said it before. I've said it on this podcast because it's your it's your time to strut your stuff to other people and other teams that you don't normally work with, that you don't normally see on a day to day basis. And that being said, you know everybody everybody essentially uh, showed showed us what what they've got. I mean, it was amazing to see uh cross-examination in action it was and you know what i i i also say try new things so it's it's great to see these uh associates you know pushing uh new theories trying new cross-examination techniques because this is this is the time to do it um i do have to say you know alexa i, I believe at, during the last podcast said um that the the mock trial that i chaired uh, was very unforgiving, and I actually agree with her. <laughs> I agree with her. I that year was notorious because everyone went in blind every single uh, prompt, every single month, and so uh, it was. It was essentially someone called a Judge Judy live. I mean, it was. It was. Uh, some weeks were so hard. Some months were so you know uh, unexpected. And so you know what, Alexa? No, no offense taken. Absolutely. Right. She was a complete spectator because <laughs> she didn't participate. This is her first year doing the Montreal program. So she prepped by reviewing the podcast from last year. And she that's how she came to that conclusion. It's very interesting. Harkens back to that those days where we just said, you know what? 
<laughs> we do this sometimes. We don't know what's going on in cases and get last minute referrals or last minute questions. Uh, it, it is good practice, but to, to see it kind of come to reversion, like you said, Connor, it's a very good um you know, assessment of our talent level, especially the paralegals, right? I'm always impressed by the paralegals every single year uh, because we don't see them make arguments, right? Unless they're, uh, you know, working with the attorney for specific things to be on their own is always very uh, interesting and exciting. So give it a listen. But today we're going to talk about uh, a claimant that uh, I will remember for the rest of my life. That's for sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, you don't uh, too often say that. And you also don't too often say that for a case that ultimately becomes successful. But like I say in every podcast episode, uh, if we didn't have some level of victory here, we wouldn't be telling you all about it. Uh, so let's start there. Uh what happened in this case from the workers' compensation level, Connor, and how did you know how, how can we summarize that very succinctly to get us to where we are now? Uh, to put it in simple terms, the claimant slipped and fell on a wet bathroom floor back in the uh, August of 2016. Uh, claim was established to the head, back, pelvis, post concussion syndrome, headaches, uh, and eventually the neck. Then in April of 2020, uh, he's classified with a permanent impairment. Uh, then, uh, in ter- and then he was actually found to get his Elwick, starting to get his Elwick award in November of 2021. Uh, then it turns out he settled uh, his third party civil claim against a different tortfeasor. And then uh, claimant's counsel and myself uh, began negotiating terms of a $0.32 um, in February of 2022, where we would be waiving our third-party lien under Section 29. So let's stop there then, right? So that's a very normal case, right? It's nothing crazy. Uh, we're not talking about it on a podcast or really shouting from the rooftops what happened here. A claimant is classified with a permanent partial disability because he or she has a loss of wagering capacity. On the side, a third-party civil claim is being settled, and the recovery of the proceeds from that uh, case can now be used to settle both claims, including the workers' compensation claim, where you mentioned a $0 Section 30U settlement. We are saying we are going to waive any reimbursement rights we have from that case if you agree to settle the workers' compensation claim, right? So just to put it into perspective, that's normal. Everything is normal up until what happens next. So in workers' comp, we don't really go to arbitration. You are negotiating settlements via phone, email, sometimes even text messages. So we were in the normal course of uh, workers' comp negotiations. And it turns out after not working for six years, right around the time where we have a deal in place and we are about to send out the documents for everyone to start signing. We can wash our hands clean of this claim and be done with him. (laughs) Um, The claim that he went back to work uh, for the employer in March of 2022. So once learning of this fact, which is what any normal and reasonable person would deem a material change 
of fact and condition that alters a term of a settlement, um, claimant's counsel wasn't happy. Well, well right, because here, right, like when when the normal parts of the claim end, right, and when we start going into the twilight zone here, is where uh, this claimant, right, um, he receives a settlement offer in that civil case for over a million dollars. Over a million dollars for what was a slip and fall in the bathroom, right? Uh, I've slipped and fell many times in bathrooms. I've never gotten a million dollars for it, but maybe someday. Anyway, he's about to get a million dollars. He's been getting paid in the workers' compensation claim and getting free medical care for years. And then once he realizes that it's kind of over... He almost wants more money. <laughs> so he goes back to work and decides to start this, you know, crazy, crazy game that is kind of coming to an end, but took us a while to get there. So he comes back to work. Connor, uh, continue from there. Yeah. So he went back to work. And once learning of this fact, I went back to our adversary and said, hey, uh, your guy went back to work. Uh, the terms of the agreement have to be redrafted. And my biggest takeaway, which I'm sure we'll get to, is I should have worded that email a little better because that's when he, that's when the, I guess I've heard someone call it a holy war, um, started to, to take place because once uh, the adversary decided he didn't like our revised terms where we were seeking now full reimbursement of our recoverable lien uh, in exchange for our consent for him to settle the third party claim for that over a million dollars, he proceeded to engage in litigation outside of the workers' comp court. See, I I have to jump in there again, Connor, because, I, I mean, it's very nice that you're humble about wanting to, you know, uh, recreate a better uh, position, but I don't. I actually don't think you, you needed to change the wording of your email. I think it was uh, perfectly on point with where we needed to be. I mean, yes, uh, I do think that if litigation uh, comes out of an email, then of course I'd want everybody to look at their action and see what could be done better. But for all intents and purposes. There was not one single moment where I felt like the email was less than perfect, perfect and reasonable. And so to to put it into perspective for our clients and, and our listeners here, we have a situation where the return to work changes the future exposure in our claim. Right. We know that when claimants return to work, indemnity exposure is cut off. Medical exposure typically goes down. And so. If we look at it in the context of what the negotiations were, we were saying we're waiving our right to reimbursement if you don't do anything in the workers' compensation claim. But by returning to work, you might not do anything in the workers' compensation claim anymore. So why would we waive all the money that is rightfully ours, by law, statutorily ours, right? So when you say he engages in litigation, what did he what did he actually do? And this is his... Uh, civil attorney, right? What did he do to start uh, this this process? So he he filed a proposed interim order in the in the civil claim. Now, 
outside of uh, an employer and carrier giving consent, claimants and plaintiffs, they have the ability to seek settlement authorization or without our, to settle their third party claim without our consent through a compromise uh, order. However, he did not follow the actual protocols that are outlined in the Section 29.5 statute. Um, <laughs> you know, so we then had to file uh, motions and oppositions, which was fun for me because I got to do something outside of comp. Felt like I was doing, uh, I don't want to say real attorney, real lawyering, but I was doing something outside of what we normally do. It's full yeah. service, right? I mean, I think that, you know, we... Uh, it's not maybe it's not every day, but we we definitely have attorneys in our office that are are actually in person, uh, do, you know, uh, litigating cases. We have attorneys uh, appearing virtually for civil cases as well, and it's a a place where yes, like we're not expecting it to go there because we find ourselves very adept at predicting how things are going to end in particular claims, but. You know, sometimes and, you know, although I, I, I don't enjoy the way that this particular uh, attorney really took it, there was some part of me that, you know, attorney to attorney, I'm like, that's I guess that's kind of creative, right, to to try and reach an end for your client, even though maybe you don't have the best arguments on your side. Uh, so we're in civil court for this motion. Uh, what what happens? So in September of 2022, <clears throat> so we're about six months removed from the ne- initial negotiations, uh, the filing of all the papers in the civil court. Well, the judge uh, agreed with claimant's counsel. Uh, and what that meant was that there was an enforceable $0 Section 32 agreement where our client was deemed to have waived uh, their Section 29 lien. Uh, and the claimant can settle their third-party claim, um, you know. And obviously, we did not agree, and because it's factually and legally incorrect for a judge to do that, as the workers' comp is has exclusive jurisdiction uh, over Section 32 settlements and in, in resolution of these workers' comp claims. And so then we proceeded uh, to take it to take it higher to the fourth department in the appellate division. Um, yeah, that's, that's where we'll, we'll maybe turn it to Addison here. Right. I mean, I think this is part of where, you know, we can enjoy uh, really the fruits of our success because, um, you know, we are at the 50 attorney mark uh, very soon. If, if not uh, already by the time of this publishing and uh, the, idea of preparing for something like this going to the fourth department uh, i can tell you it was certainly a treat to have to you know have our own mock trial right where we could uh play aaron zimmerman we can play uh the uh potential judges in this case right how could we work together to create a result for you and and what was your process in, in in preparing these arguments at the fourth department level Sure. So the task was a mighty one. Uh, It was figuring out how to tell the right story. And there are many ways to tell the stories, right? You could tell a story chronologically, once upon a time, blah, 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 you know, and then, and then, and then the end. 
You could also, you know, pull a Quentin Tarantino and tell a story thematically, right, where time is on the back end and really, you know, action and themes and, you know, uh, the underlying uh, emotion is what drives the story. Here, I actually wanted to tell this story in a way where the assumptions based on the underlying facts of the case were spelled out. And the assumptions were quite clear. They were quite simple, right? Uh, I think Connor's email was perfectly worded because the assumptions that upheld that email, that were underpinning these correspondences, was that it was for negotiations referable to a workers' compensation settlement. So any any, uh, correspondence back and forth is essentially negotiations not subject to, uh, you know, to uh, authorization without the board, but I digress. So in terms of the preparation for this, the story goes as this. The judge believed that because these emails, when put together, appear to look like an agreement, which I disagree, because those emails are together, therefore the Section 29 waiver uh, applies. Therefore, the lien gets waived. And because the lien is waived, therefore, the Section 32 agreement is approved. But that's that's totally wrong, right? If you tell the story chronologically, that does make some semblance of sense. But that's not the case here. The case is actually reversed, right? There's no jurisdiction to approve a Section 32 agreement in civil court, right? And because there's no jurisdiction to approve a Section 32 agreement in civil court, that means there's no jurisdiction to find that the 29 lien is waived. And because there's no jurisdiction to, fu- uh, to find that that is subject to waiver, that means the underlying negotiations had no meeting of the minds, period, right? So it was really unraveling the spool and then re-raveling it back up in the opposite way. So that was essentially the story that we had to tell. That was essentially the process. Yeah, and so we make those arguments, and it, it, it almost felt like law school, right? Uh, where, you know, it's before judges who, they've read our, our paperwork, they've read our, our briefs, our arguments, and it's not, you know, presenting, I mean, you use like a timeline or chronology aspect to, to talk about the theory of this case, right? When the judges can just ask you pinpoint questions. It could That could be on page X of the brief, not on page one, right? It, it really did feel like law school. And I was like, wow, this is actually where, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, your friends, your family that are attorneys, like this is kind of what you may see, right? On TV, this is like the idea of just, you know, litigating back and forth arguments, debates, all that type of thing. And we make those arguments. How did you feel after it was over? Did you feel like we had won or did you feel like we had lost? What 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 was your thought process there? Sure. It, you know, the type of work that I do differs from like Perry Mason, right? Uh, going into a courtroom. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But going into a courtroom, cross-examining witnesses, 
pounding the table and yelling objection. That's that is the stereotypical uh, makings of a trial court. The appellate court is more of a discussion as to the spirit of the law. It's more of a discussion as to how the law applies to facts. Uh, the appellate court is not a fact-finding court per se. They're not going to sit there and it's not going to say, oh, well, I disagree with how the judge viewed the facts, right? It, it Really, the only way to reverse an underlying order, and this applies in federal court, it applies at the Supreme Court, it applies uh, in, in our state, in New York and in New Jersey, is whether the law was properly applied given the facts that were developed. And so going in, I knew right away that the judges were prepared. The court was very prepared, immediately asking questions. Uh, one, one judge asked, uh, you know, oh, what do you think about page 46 in the record, paragraph four? And I had to know what he was talking about. Truth is, I think I responded something like, oh, can you tell me the date of that of that document or the date of that co email correspondence? And then the judge went into it. But it, it was a very lively debate. Uh, essentially, the court understood our position. And that was the key. The key here was to provide a cogent story so that everybody understood our position. There's no jurisdiction for a 32 agreement to be passed through the civil court. There's no jurisdiction to find that the 29 lien was waived. There was no meeting of the minds. In that order, not in the order that counsel of record and the underlying judge uh, purported it to be. So I would like to say, you know, in hindsight, it felt good. I felt like the, like the court was responding to our arguments, was prodding as to the nuances. Um, but that's hindsight. You know, at the time, I remember getting out of the courtroom and I was, you know, I was shivering, whether that was the, you know, 30 degree weather in Rochester that day, or, uh, you know, me being terrified whether we did a good job for the client or not is up for debate. Yeah. What about you, Connor? Did, you know, we all saw it, we saw it happen live. Uh, you know, which way were you on the, on the meter towards winning or losing those arguments? You know, I was more on the meter of winning. Um, I'm a very competitive person by nature. And just the way that Addison presented our position and our arguments that were in his papers and then before that panel of judges. And then I can't remember the exact comment uh, from one of the, the panel members, but he made a comment and like it's clicked in my mind was like, oh, they understand what's going on. Uh and so I was more in the aspect of that, okay, this is going to, this underlying decision is going to be reversed. We're going to be back to ground zero and we're going to, we're going to come out, you know, in a better position. Uh, I will say though, it did, uh, Addison can probably attest, we thought the decision was going to come out a lot sooner uh, than it did. So the delay did kind of present some nerves. It's like, oh goodness, like what's going on? Like, I thought they were on our side. It's pretty cut cut and dry like, you know? a, like like a jury in a criminal trial if they haven't come back with a guilty verdict yet are they trying to exactly. convince everybody else that the person's innocent you know i i actually felt like we already won uh you know regardless of decision right i mean we're talking about actions taken throughout a claim and you know throughout this conversation if all we can point to is like maybe i wish i would have reworded an email that was already reasonable anyway i felt we already won and um you know you're talking about the process as an explain like you know what the fourth department scheduling is of reviewing you know these types of cases and and, and why were we expecting it to come down sooner than rather than later sure so 
just uh, just to spell out again the assumptions behind appellate courts, most appeals that go to appellate courts affirm the underlying judgment. I'd say a good eighty to ninety percent. That applies in every state. It applies every level, federal, uh, all the way up to SCOTUS. That being said. Uh, the turnaround time is pretty quick. And at the Appellate Division 3rd Department, it's pretty quick. Uh, I've seen some come out in uh, two weeks. I've seen the longest wait uh, after, of course, the court uh, receives the documentation and it is submitted to the court, right? So uh, oral argument is the equivalent of submission, uh, like on the papers. So I'm thinking, okay, three weeks by the end of the month. On the way out, there was a there was a local uh, attorney who was talking to two other people. Uh, very, they're all very chatty in upstate New York. I mean, everyone is so friendly. Oh, you're not from around these parts. Uh, well, you could what? It was my Jersey accent, maybe, but. Um, you know, I said, so how to these attorneys while I was getting my coat on leaving, how, you know, fast do these decisions uh, get released? Oh, three weeks. Don't worry. Three weeks. I'm thinking three weeks, the end of the term. Great. Three weeks pass. Nothing. Six weeks. Nothing. Nine weeks. Now we're on three months and I'm starting to sweat. Um, but then when I read the decision and I finally, you know, have the paper in hand, um, it was unanimously reversed on the law per curium. So all of the justices who sat on the court, the whole court as a whole, wrote this decision. So it gives it a little bit more weight than just one justice writing a decision and everybody concurring. This was an unsigned per curium. Uh, and essentially, it, it adopted all of our arguments made. There's no jurisdiction for a 32 agreement to be passed through the civil court. There's no jurisdiction for the civil court to find that the 29 lien was waived. And even though uh, the court did not reach the question of whether there was meeting of the minds, the court described it as academic, which is moot. It's a legal uh, principle that it's basically the controversy has been resolved. Um, so, there, you know, it won't waste its time and determine the other the other uh, arguments. But nevertheless, the court found that the Workers' Compensation Board is the proper jurisdiction. Um, I was over the moon. I was over the moon and I froze. I mean, I, I was, uh, I knew that it was a good decision. I knew that we had a good presence. I knew that we had a good argument. It sounds obvious when you say it out loud, right? The Workers' Compensation Board needs to approve Section 32 agreements, period, right? Without the board, there's no agreement. It can't be enforced. But when you're living through it in real time, it can get scary, there are many sleepless nights. Yeah, you know, you, you want to win the ones that you feel like you should win, right? So uh, I'm sure there's a little bit of that. But also, you just have to think that if it's not coming out this way, then what are, what 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 is going to happen in the future, right? Like, who is going to be that justice in the fourth department that's going to say, you know what, I'm going to hear argument on all these future workers' compensation settlements, because that's what they would be doing. Right, right. Yeah. If they would be, like, affirming the lower trial court judge's decision, they'd be saying, you know what? Bring all your Section 32 settlements to me, and I will, you know, I, I basically have to expand, uh, you know, I love to, you know, basically stand on imaginary soapbox for these things, because what else would we do with, with, with a record button here? But Imagine the state expenditures for more employees to have to deal with an increased docket. You'd have to create almost 
a fifth department, sixth department, mm-hmm. seven, you know, just keep going until you get to the point of I have enough personnel to hear whether workers' compensation settlements are legitimate and approvable. So I guess that's kind of why I thought we'd already won. It just didn't make sense that someone would think that this could be an outcome. Well, you know, his argument was a pretty pretty interesting one. It was that the Supreme Court in New York has jurisdiction over this because it always retains jurisdiction. But that's not, that's a fringe constitutional theory. That's not a legitimate New York or federal constitutional theory at all. When the legislature passes a law incurring specific jurisdiction over a certain matter, such as administrative law, such as the workers' compensation system, that it's called delegation doctrine. So that delegates, essentially, uh, the legislature's power to the executive. And that's what we're doing. Um, had uh, the plaintiff here originally filed in Supreme Court, we might have a totally different argument. But the plaintiff here filed as a claimant in the workers' compensation system. And so, you know, we we brought home this victory. We brought home um, a, a more stable, predictable, controllable uh, legal landscape. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to kind of summarize it. It's essentially, you know, what we knew to be true from the outset and to feel justified and supported by, uh, you know, these justices of the appellate division. It does make you feel good that, you know, from the employer standpoint in a workers' compensation context, you know, we don't always have to get beat over the head with a mallet. You know, this is a place where the law can be upheld correctly, uh, despite some of our horror stories that have, you know, run through the gamut here. Um, You know, since then, obviously, we won't get into what's happened at, you know, other proceedings with this particular case. But Connor, I, we can probably say that that decision has led to some more favorable discussions, some favorable outcomes for us on uh, the side of, of, get, of getting this case to be closed, right? Yeah, without getting obviously into too much detail, what's taking place, you know, over the last three weeks. Uh, actually, yesterday, it kind of, or not kind of, it did come really to a favorable resolution for uh, for us and our client in terms of what we're going to recover uh, for our lien. And so our direct reimbursement, um, there were some sticking points about some, some line items that should be included in the payment ledger and be used when calculating uh, the gross uh, amount of the lien, um, as well as um, division of the settlement for loss of consortium between the plaintiff himself and the plaintiff's wife, which would overall affect what our future credit would be um, because we would only be able to take future credit based off what the claimant himself receives, not what his wife receives. So ultimately, uh, you know, the claimant's counsel, he, he, I guess, had to bow down to to my terms and and that are most favorable for us. And so um, we should be wrapping it up here uh, pretty quick. Well, don't knock on wood, right? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's knock on wood. Um, you know, the, you never know what's going to happen once once the documents are provided. 
as as anything that this case has taught me, it's probably going to come back with some edits and some line items. But uh, I think for the most part, uh, we're in a good place to get this one wrapped up after all the hard work that everybody's done. Great. Uh, takeaways, Addison, we'll start with you. Like what? What's one thing that our, our listeners can take away from this case? So when I was a young, starry-eyed, <laughs> Here we go. rising 2L, I was a 1L, and I, I was uh, so enamored by the law, I, uh, I had an internship in Newark, New Jersey, and I sat outside of the federal courthouse waiting for court to be in session, and I had all these papers. I had uh, red welds, you know, with me, and... Um, Outside of the courthouse, there's an inscription on the wall, and it's by a New Jersey Poet Laureate, and it reads this. When justice does its public part, it educates the human heart. The erring human heart, in turn, must do its private part and learn. And when I win an appellate decision or lose an appellate decision, I repeat that poem because it reminds me of the greater quilt the greater patchwork fabric that we are in our jurisprudence and our in our legal system and so honestly the takeaway is you never know right you win some you lose some it takes a great amount of time energy and effort to create a predictable stable and consistent legal field and if we had to do it all again i would absolutely lay down all of that blood energy tears just to defend my brother, Connor Weatherington, before the appellate division, fourth department. All right. How do you follow that with a takeaway, Connor? Any, anything that our listeners can, uh, you know, you, I hope you don't have a poem or maybe you do, but that, you know, what, what takeaways do you have? You know, I'm not, not well versed in poems. So uh, I apologize to the listeners that I can't follow that up, but, you know, I think Addison sums it up perfectly. You know, uh, you know, it, they always say when you're doing something, uh, monuments it's like it takes a village to get it done and it it took a village to get this done and to get this favorable outcome and just like as i said the blood sweat and the tears the energy the time the effort uh as long as you know we have people here at lois that are by my side and especially addison by my side and if i have to do this again you know i wouldn't want to do it with anybody else well it does take a village right uh and here we always have been that village for our clients, we always will be that village for our clients. So for Connor Weatherington, for Addison O'Donnell, this is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.